0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to announce that we now have a toll-free number for our listeners to leave a comment or a question. Please dial one 855 625 if you are outside of the U.S., Canada, or Caribbean, or if you want to make your recording using a voice recorder, please visit www.lifeonrecord.com slash podcast slash question mark EID equals E43B98. You can also visit the show notes to get the link there or our website and follow the link there. Do you know somebody that has a birthday, anniversary, or any other special occasion coming up? A great way to give them a wonderful gift is a meaningful audio keepsake of phoned in stories, memories, and well wishes from family and friends telling the recipient why they are so special. For more information, visit lifeonrecord.com. Great way to get a toll-free number so any of your friends and family can call in and leave these messages And you can get it recorded onto a keepsake for the person you're giving this to. 8 hours. Today I'm going to discuss how employees have become lazy, unwilling to work 10 to 14 hours a day, 6 days a week. Unwilling to wake up early, go to work, come home, eat, and go to bed so you can do it again in the morning. That was the thoughts of the industrialists back in the 1800s. Terence Powderly of the Knights of Labor on September 6, 1869, watched as the victims of the Avondale Mine Disaster, we discussed this last episode, watched the bodies of 179 miners being brought up to their families. This event, he said, changed his life and view of labor. Five years later, in 1874, Powderly joined the Knights of Labor, a union based on the Freemasons. The Union officers were given similar titles as were Masons. Its members were secret along with the Union itself. For example, in writing they did not write out the Union name but used five asterisks to represent the name. The Knights accepted men and women of any race of all crafts and levels of skill, as well as previously unorganized laborers such as laundresses and tobacco harvesters. They believed that Americans of good conscience naturally shared the desire for sweeping reform in the dynamics between labor and capital, so much so that they even encouraged employers to join. The Knights brought back some of the goals the NLU had such as cooperatives, land and currency reform, and an end to child labor. Economic parity between male and female laborers. Powderly did not agree with strikes. The group pursued what he called uplift, the gradual improvement of workers' lives through long-term goals like public ownership of the railroads, the disciplining of wayward employers through workers' boycotts of consumer products. They started 135 manufacturing cooperatives in coal mining, cooperage, printing, shoemaking, and much more. But eventually, all failed from the lack of financing and marketing skills like the cooperatives created by the NLU. These failures were a drain of their treasury, while the organization's reluctance of strikes made success by the Knights difficult. In spite of powder leaves, dislike for strikes, the Knights did claimed several strike victories against the railroad starting in 1882. In 1885, the final showdown with J. Gold, the nation's most powerful railroad financier, when Gold tried to smash a regional railroad union affiliated with the Knights, Powderly demanded a face-to-face meeting with Gold, a first time that a leader of an American workers' organization had been granted such a meeting with a major capitalist an agreement was reached, Gold would stop targeting Knights and accept their right to organize. The Knights would not strike Gold's railroads again without first engaging in direct consultation with management. The fact that the Knights received this agreement sent their reputation and their memberships soaring from 100,000 to 700,000 in one year. The industrialists became worried as this surge of membership gave the Knights the ability to shut commerce down. But that was not their biggest concern. The Knights' Masonic vision of nationalization of the railroads was a huge concern. But Jay Gold, the same one that led to the surge in the membership, was not done with the Knights. When the Knights' federated rail union struck without Powderly's say-so, taking 3,000 men off their jobs, Gold accused the Grand Master workmen of breaking their no-strike agreement. Gold then called in Pinkerton detectives and state militia, hired anti-labor toughs to safeguard replacement workers. He had strike meetings broken up and labor-sympathetic journalists intimidated. The knights and strikers were criticized for un- inconveniencing the national rail system and selfishly trying to introduce a new right. The right to be employed by people who do not want you and who cannot pay what you are asking. Gold refused to negotiate. Faced with the hired guns, the Knights withdrew the support of the strike and ordered the strikers to return to work. This was a total defeat for the Knights. Another blow to the Knights was its own doing a lack of serious promotion and push for the eight hour day. In 1884, The new Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, led by Samuel Gompers, chose the eight-hour day as a way of galvanizing and growing its membership. When in 1893 Gompers was asked
1: what labor wanted, he said, What does labor want? It wants the earth and fullness thereof. Labor wants more schoolhouses and less jail cells, more books and less arsenals, more learning and less vice, more leisure and less greed, more justice and less revenge, in fact, more of the opportunities to cultivate our better natures and to make manhood more noble, womanhood more beautiful, and childhood more happy and bright. To give
0: workers an objective to rally around, the Federation set May 1, 1886 as the date which no trade unionist would ever again work more than an eight-hour day. Although Powderly gave the crusade his half-hearted approval, he cautioned his supporters away from direct conflict with employers or strike talk, urging them to seek change through legislation and other peaceful means. But it has become a pattern for the unions to listen to Powderly than do as they wish." Even Gompers' federation found it difficult to keep pace with its members' zeal for the eight-hour day. Neither Powderly or Gompers was the growing call for eight hours, which sparked so emotionally division that it would not only paralyze the eight-hour cause, but change forever the way Americans viewed organized labor. Two groups during this time became prominent in the labor movement. The first was the Working men's party later to become the socialist labor party they tried to make change by using politics running candidates in chicago parsons led the workmen's party during the 1870s parsons speech in 1877 is suspected of creating the violence during the great strike parsons counterpart a rising star in the movement was august spies spies in 1877 became a business manager for a German-language daily paper, The Arbiter Zitong, A year later, he became its editor, making the Tongue much more radical. The other group was anarchists. Johann Most, who published the nation's best-known anarchist paper, Die Freiheit, typified the radical separation of anarchists from the average labor management solutions. By 1884, Chicago's Central Labor Union had 2,000 members, chiefly German and Poles, and a journal, The Alarm, by Albert Parsons. These socialists and anarchists published articles about making bombs, making guns, the use of knives against capitalists so often that it brought about concern. But did they really mean it? For the most part, it was symbolic. But it was a dangerous game. Chicago outlawed all paramilitary organizations, not directly a part of the state militia, as a result of such articles. In April of 1885, a violent confrontation with Capo in which workers came out on top. Located south of town, the McCormick Reaper Company was, with its 2,000 employees, the world's largest farm implement manufacturer. Workers had struck over poor pay, long work hours and their frustration with the insulting and dictatorial bearing of the foreman and superintendent. The company responded by hiring scabs protected by the detested Pinkerton Pups or the Pinkerton Detective Agency. When a rumor spread that strikers were fired upon, a group of them boldly ambushed the wagons being used by the Pinkertons dragging the detectives to the ground and beating them, senseless. Inside one of the vehicles, the strikers discovered two cases of Winchester rifles and 25 Colt revolvers, which they seized. McCormick executives were caught off guard by the workers terrorizing of the Pinkertons, and with their great factory largely idle and the roads leading to it blocked by strikers, they asked for a parley. A company spokesman met with with a workers' delegation, and after dealing in palaver and taffy until it disgusted the committee, offered terms of compromise, acceded to many of the employees' demands, including a wage increase. The alarm cheered the victory as the most exciting, serious, and determined struggle between capitalists, and wage laborers that has occurred in Chicago in several years and termed McCormick's capitulation as an unconditional surrender. Both Parsons and Spies emphasized the heroic example the McCormick workers had given in conquering force with force, but the episode would have serious ramifications as a result of the workers' bravado mayor carter harrison who had dedicated his efforts to maintaining a relative calm between workers and the police came under pressure from local businessmen to institute stronger checks on radical agitation in october 1885 he promoted to police inspector one of the city's toughest cops captain john bonfield who was so feared in the city's ethnic enclaves he was known as blackjack or simply the clubber This was a move by Harrison that no one could have expected since it went against his personality. He loved Chicago, was often seen riding a bay horse around town, attended block parties, and ethnic celebrations, not stiffly and out of duty, but because he truly enjoyed himself. Bonfield had been with the police since 1877, the year of the Great Strike. He received several promotions for taking on assignments in areas of dangerous locations, He suggested the use of call boxes so lone officers could call for backup if the need arose. His real value, though, was his aggression in street action. Like in July 1885, during the trolley car strike, he had ordered his men to clear the streets of protesters. But the protesters refused, calling the police officers scabs and rats. Bonfield became angered. He led his men into the crowd and was seen pounding protesters into submission. Even though Mayor Harrison's son was among hundreds who were bruised by police that day, Bonfield received a slap on the wrist. Reality is his actions that day earned him a favorable impression. The radical labor elements had initially disparaged the plan by Samuel Gompers and the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions to use May 1, 1886 as a day of nationwide demonstrations and a general strike in support of the eight-hour cause, feeling that this cause was weak, not important to the men of labor. This cause was compelling, rallying cry as recently as September 1, 1882, when it was one of the themes of a monster labor festival in New York City. The day-long event was scheduled so that as to show labor power just before the fall political season. Many protesters showed up at Union Square in company uniforms or shop aprons, including 500 jewelers, cigar makers, unions passing out cigars, numerous bands and floats, the workers showing their numbers so that local politicians knew not to mess with the unions. In February 1886, The Alarm had come to the conclusion that the eight-hour cause was the progressive idea underlying the entire labor movement, and Parsons and his fellow anarchists embraced it for its potential to humiliate and inconvenience the industrial system. The Alarm did an article just prior to the May 1st demonstration asking if the workers had the spirit of the people who took up arms against England in the Revolutionary War. While the conservative paper, the mall, accused Parsons and Spies as agitators looking to cause problems, that the readers should watch them, and if trouble started, they should be held accountable for the trouble. Rumor was that Bonfield was ready to end any trouble started that day, but May 1st was largely calm despite Chicago's having the nation's largest eight-hour rally and parade, with nearly 100,000 people marching down Michigan Avenue. Tens of thousands also turned out in New York, Detroit, Milwaukee, and other cities. Monday, May 3rd, brought change, again involving McCormick's. It decided to move aggressively against their employees. They dismissed a large number of skilled iron molders so they could be replaced by new pneumatic molding machines. Other workers walked out in sympathy, demanding the rehiring of the molders and higher pay for unskilled employees. McCormick responded by hiring 300 scabs to take the strikers' jobs, but instead of hiring the Pinkerton Detective Agency this time, the firm arranged for a special 350-man force of police organized by Bonfield, but the tension grew, resulting in several brawls and exchanges of insults. On that day, August Vise was near the McCormick factory at an unrelated rally of lumber workers when shots were heard from the McCormick site. A shift change was underway and the usual taunting of scabs had apparently escalated. Some of the people at the spies rally were McCormick workers and they immediately ran to the scene of the fighting. During the confrontation, Bonfield's police savagely beat dozens of workers and shot four men to death. To protest the slaughter at McCormick's, a rally was called for the next evening at Chicago's Haymarket Square. The turnout was low, about 3,000 instead of the 25,000 hoped for. This could be because so many participated in the eight-hour day march a few days before are from fear of police violence based on what happened at McCormick's. The square was too large for the small turnout, so the leaders used a wagon as a speaking platform. The gathering was peaceful and Mayor Harrison came and mingled with the crowd as Spies and Parsons spoke. It was a breezy evening with rain threatening before heading home, Harrison stopped by the nearby Des Street Police Station, where Bonfield had his troops in readiness if it became necessary to confront the group in the Haymarket. The police had decided not to have a presence in the square, but Bonfield had sent observers there to monitor the events and report back if words became inflammatory or the crowd troublesome. Mayor Harrison told Bonfield and other cops that the rally was lightly attended, not boisterous, and he even suggested some of the reserve officers on duty could be allowed to go home. Spies was speaking from the wagon, accusing the McCormick managers of murder, yet cautioning against retaliation. Parsons, having returned to town that evening from speaking in Cincinnati, came to the square with his wife, Lucy, and their two children, Lulu and Albert Jr. He urged the audience to arm themselves in self-defense. After speaking, Parsons left with his family to join friends at a nearby Zepp's Saloon. Last to address the gathering was Samuel Feldon, a former English lay preacher who worked as a teamster. Rugged and burly in appearance, he was a favorite speaker at labor movement rallies because of his sense of humor and his use of quaint British isms. Rain started as he spoke and people started to drift away, leaving a small crowd of a few hundred. The tone of his speech was different.
1: Keep your eye on it. Throttle it. Kill it. Stab it. Do everything you can to wound it. To impede its progress, socialists are not going to declare war I tell you, War has been declared on us.
0: Something of these remarks was transmitted to Bonfield, who ordered his men out of the station. As Feldon was finishing his speech, and the rally was moments from ending, Captain William Ward walked to the speaker's wagon at
1: the head of the police column and told Felden, Name of the people of Illinois, I. Command this meeting immediately and peacefully disperse. We are peaceable
0: and was stepping down from the wagon when suddenly there was a terrific explosion the square lit by a blinding white light a bomb had been thrown at the police one matthias degen was killed instantly many others fell wounded some mortally those officers who could quickly unholstered their guns and swept the sidewalks with a hot and telling fire several workers were struck a few may have returned fire and in the smoke and confusion the police also shot into their own ranks it all happened within seconds and just as swiftly the crowd was in full flight some helping to carry away bleeding and injured comrades the police retreated in mass to the Desplaines street station where the scene was one of carnage the floors slick with blood as dying policemen and the wounded breathed in pain and volunteers tried frantically to administer aid seven policemen died from their wounds 67 were badly hurt, other workers 4 died and 50 were wounded. Samuel Felden was led away by companions, a police bullet lodged in his knee. The nation was outraged over the incident, a deadly assault on uniformed police by anarchists, many newspapers speaking out against them while the newspapers proclaimed that the bombing was a concerted, deliberately planned and coolly executed murder. It became apparent to investigators within several hours that there was little proof to support this theory. Police brought in many male suspects and some women, along with boxes of suspicious papers and other items, but let most of them go free. They held on to seven of these men, branding them as ringleaders of the plot. August Bies, Adolf Fisher, George Engel, Louis Ling, Michael Schwab, Samuel Felden, and Oscar Nieb. Only Felden and Spies had been at the Haymarket Rally when the bomb went off. Albert Parsons, having left with his family earlier, had time to evade the police, leaving on a midnight train to stay with friends. Rudolf Schnellbolt, an anarchist suspected by the police of having thrown the bomb, had also disappeared. Sifting through the little evidence and interviewing witnesses, investigators could not agree on whether the bomb had been thrown at the police from the speaker's wagon, the sidewalk, or a window overhead. The following theory emerged that conspirators wanting revenge from the killings at McCormick's factory had met at Grief's Hall on Monday night and laid plans to murder as many police as possible. They intended the rally to start with normal speeches by getting more radical until police responded. The problem with this theory was, was Bonfield's response necessary? Could they have predicted this response? Could the bombing been done by someone who was not an anarchist? Also ignored was that most of the wounds were caused by the police firing into their own ranks in the moment after the bomb went off, causing the police panic. The defendants hired two lawyers, William Perkins Black, a Civil War hero and recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor and criminal defense lawyer William A. Foster. The judge was Joseph Eaton Gary, a 20-year veteran of the Cook County Superior Court who was not known for his sympathy to the interests of workers or radicals. Black asked the judge to recuse himself based on his known bias, a change in venue, and separate trials for each defendant. All of these were denied. On June 21, 1886, the trial opened with a flourish. Parsons, coming through the courtroom doors, having escaped capture for weeks, Parsons informed the judge in a clear voice.
1: I have come to stand trial, Your Honor, with my innocent comrades. The trial was
0: a travesty of justice even before it was started. To start with, the jury selection process. There was no way to sit a jury that did not feel the defendants were guilty. So the judge threw out the question to the jury about the defendants' guilt or if the juror might keep an open mind. The judge only sought a dubious guarantee that they would be objective in a murder trial and closed off the defense's peremptory challenges. The result was a jury of 12 white men, not a single one of whom was a laborer or an immigrant, a few of whom even said they were friends of policemen who had been present at the Haymarket Square. On July 15th, the trial started with Julius Grinnell, laying out the prosecution's case reading from anarchist and socialist tracts testimony given from paid informants, Grinwell accused August spies of orchestrating the violence at the McCormick plant. At a gathering at Grease Hall on the night of May 3rd, the conspirators had agreed to hurl bombs at the police if it made a show of force. Samuel Felden's speech was designed to agitate the police and bring a response. The spilling of police blood would in turn trigger a city-wide uprising of working men and other citizens. Although they could not identify the bomber, Grinnell told the jury that it was not necessary in this kind of case. The defense used testimony to point out several inconsistencies with the prosecutor's case. First, the meeting at Grief's could not be about a bombing plot as it was open to the public. Albert Parsons was not at that meeting as he was in Ohio that evening making a speech. He had only heard of the Haymarket Gathering upon arriving back in Chicago on May 4th. He had also brought his wife and two kids with him to Haymarket. Louis Ling had also not been at either the grief meeting nor the Haymarket. Even though it appeared he had manufactured bombs, there was no evidence linking him to the bombs in Haymarket. Even with Rudolf Schnowa appeared guilty with his vanishing, the defense was able to point out his involvement was just speculation. As was the prosecutor's attempt to place the bomb in the hands of either Adolf Fischer or another man, Reinhold Big Kruger, who could not answer for himself because he had been killed in the Haymarket. Unionist Oscar Nieb's connection to the defendant and the cause of anarchy was so vague that, as one observer put it, all the accusations against him, even if true, would not justify a $5 fine. Nieb's testified that, yes, he had committed many crimes.
1: I am guilty of many crimes, Your Honor, the crime of organizing bakers so that instead of working 14 to 16-hour days, they now only work 10. I have committed the same crime for brewers and grocery clerks, many who now have Sundays off. That, Your Honor, is a great crime.
0: Parsons brought up that the bomber could have been a Pinkerton agent or other person hired by industrialists to cause an incident to give license license to a sweeping crackdown on anarchists and labor advocates. This idea was unproven as much as the prosecutors. Black's closing arguments begged for jurors' objectivity and perspective, reminding them that Jesus had also been a socialist, in a sense no different from the defendants. Grinnell rapped for the state, saying, "...there could be no place for anarchism in America's free, egalitarian society." On August 19, after making sure the jurors understood the defendant could be found guilty of murder, even though no physical evidence linked them to the victims. One hour into deliberations, they were seen relaxing and smoking cigars. The only sticking point being whether Oscar Neeb, whose role was tangential, deserved execution. The jury convicted him and recommended a sentence of 15 years. The others were all sentenced to die at the gallows. The case was taken to the Illinois Supreme Court, who found no procedural unfairness, while the federal Supreme Court refused to hear the appeal. Although the appeal failed, it brought attention to the unfairness of the trial. Soon, a campaign started with petitions to the governor to commute the death sentences to life terms. Governor Oglesby eventually agreed to commute the sentences to life if the Chicago business leaders agreed and the condemned in turn agreed to disavow in writing their words and actions. Schwab and Felden did so. Parsons, Vise, Engel, Fisher, and Ling refused. It was announced that the sentence would be carried out on the morning of November 11, 1887. Ling suddenly was discovered to have bomb-making materials in his cell, and although no one was able to discover how he got the materials into the cell, it calmed the uproar over the hangings. On the night before execution, Ling managed to crack a blasting cap open in his mouth, killing him. That night, a friend of Parsons asked him if he regretted turning himself in. He replied that he did not, that it was the honorable thing to do. This incident left the labor movement floundering as the bombing put the whole movement looking bad in many people's eyes. They had three options, defend the principles for which the men had died, strive harder to distance themselves from anarchism, or simply move on. The night struck for the eight-hour day in 1886, 20,000 striking the Chicago meatpacking plants. Management hired scabs protected by special guards under control of the Pinkerton's detective agency. The workers, after being out three weeks, felt they were close to concessions when Powderly ordered them back to work, and anyone refusing would be kicked out of the nights. The strikers returned to the 16-hour work schedule but were furious at their union. The rank-and-file members began to leave the Knights. They lost members steadily from 1886 from a high of 700,000 down to 75,000 members by 1893, which happens to be the year Powderly was removed from the Knights, but his replacement, James Sovereign, was much like Powderly, believing in gradual reform. Unfortunately, the Haymaker incident allowed the conservative elements to control the labor movement. The American Federation of Labor... AFL, ran by Gompers, became the new labor standard. It had no desire to change the economic system. They focused on wages and hours. They stated they were wage-conscious rather than class-conscious. Gompers studied union and union actions. He discovered that strikes during rough times rarely worked, but in good times, tying profit to wage demand seemed to work. Gompers believed in the right to strike. He felt it was a natural release. Between 1881 and 1883, his union of cigar makers had over 1,900 requests to strike by locals. He approved 194 strikes and won over 75% of them. Gompers believed in having a huge strike funds, seeing that employers knowing workers had the resources to endure long strikes tended to make them more willing to compromise. In the fall of 1886, 150,000 delegates from several industries formed the AFL and voted Gompers president. Gompers in many ways both helped and hurt the labor movement. For example, his 1887 denouncement of the clemency movement for the Haymarket case, on the other hand, he focused not on the big moves that were written about in the newspapers, but rather on the small details building the AFL up brick by brick. Thus far, out of the different organizations, EFL was then the appeal to. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www. LaborKnowYourRights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, ideas, or just you want to say hi, eh, or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.